Section 1 of the Counter-Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. The Counter-Reformation by Adolphus Ward. Chapter 1. Introductory. Part 1. In the history of the Western Church, while united under the acknowledged supremacy of the Bishop of Rome, there have been but few periods in which its administration and the life of its clergy have been exempt from censure. During the latter half of the Middle Ages, the reformation of these constant objects of complaint was aimed at in a long succession of efforts. Fresh bitterness was added to these grievances, and the condition of the papacy itself took the most prominent place among them, when, on the first decline of the papal authority under Boniface VIII, there followed the abasement of Avignon and the ignominy of the schism. Yet at the same time a belief sprang up that the end of these scandalous divisions would also be the end of the existing degeneracy. During the period of the ecumenical councils which ensued, the task of reforming the church in both head and members appeared at last to have been undertaken by the church itself, to the decrees of whose representative assemblies the pope himself was called upon to submit. But the Council of Pisa was dissolved by its own nominee, Alexander V. At Constance, had the majority persevered, it would have redressed nearly all the grievances urged against the church within the century preceding Luther's first assault but the success of any comprehensive measure of reform became impossible after the German nation's demand that the question of general reformation should precede the choice of a new pope had been defeated by the election of Martin V. The revived activity of the old papal system was made manifest by the results of the Council of Basel. Of some of its earlier decrees, France secured the substantial benefit to her own church in the pragmatic sanction of Bourges, but the empire was skillfully deprived of them in the Concordat of Vienna. On the main issue as to supremacy, the papal authority in the end prevailed over the conciliar. After the council which burnt Hus in 1415, and the council which transacted with the Hussites had alike sought to take the work of administration and disciplinary reform out of the hands of the popes, they, in their turn, during the next period, so far as possible ignored the decrees of both assemblies. Whatever promises were made by Nicholas V and his successors down to Alexander VI, they took care not to repeat the conciliar experiment. Thus, to the papacy itself was now left the initiative of church reform. Nor was the need of it ignored by all these pontiffs. Nicholas V sent Cardinal Cusanus, Nicholas of Cusa, to reform the German monasteries. Paul II, before his election, promised a thorough reform of both curia and clergy. And even at the close of this period, Alexander VI was at no loss for appropriate replies to the representatives on the subject addressed to him from Spain. In truth, however, Nothing short of heroic energy inspired by apostolic zeal could have made reformers of popes breathing the intellectual and moral atmosphere of the later Italian Renaissance. 
the difficulties pressing upon these pontiffs as Italian princes led them to regard themselves essentially as such, without at the same time losing sight of the influence inseparable from their religious attributes. Under Sixtus IV and Innocent VIII, simony and nepotism were the right and left arm of the papal government, absorbed in the struggle for territorial acquisitions. Alexander VI and his bastard, Cesare Borgia, stood face to face with the idea of transforming the temporal power into a hereditary dominion, while at the same time the spiritual envelope of the papacy had become transparent like a Cohen vesture. Julius II put a stop to a condition of things which even Renaissance consciences could no longer bear, although he was more distinctively than any of his predecessors an Italian prince, patriot, and politician. But his summoning of the Lateran Council of 1512 was merely an act of self-defense against the use made by his political enemies of the growing cry for ecclesiastical reformation. For notwithstanding the apathy or passive resistance of the popes, the nations of the West had not yet learned to despair of a reformation of the Church by her own constituted authorities. Nowhere was a more practical shape assumed by these cravings than in Spain, the country destined afterwards to become the chief source of the counter-reformation. The movement for the regeneration of the Spanish Church under Ferdinand and Isabella, by which Ximenez was the directing spirit, was in its political objects based on the Concordat of 1482, and it had a considerable intellectual affinity with the Renaissance. Yet notwithstanding these vital differences, it had much in common with the Counter-Reformation itself, besides the coordination of the Inquisition, revived in Spain under a new constitution, 1483. Thus it was a Spaniard, Carvajal, who thought to crown his demonstrations on behalf of church reform, when, in company with four other cardinals, members of the Sacred College, he summoned a council to Pisa, in despite of the Pope, 1511. At first it seemed as if this daring stroke would be attended with success. A few meetings were held at Pisa and at Milan under the aegis of Louis XII of France, whose national policy was consistently directed to the restoration of the pragmatic sanction nominally abolished by Louis XI. The summons to Pisa at first likewise received the sanction of the Emperor Maximilian I, for the widespread desire in Germany for reformation had found frequent expression at the diets of the empire. The Gravamina, presented at Worms in 1510, are in fact largely identical with the complaints which the councils of Constance and Basel had in vain sought to redress, and for which there seemed no enduring remedy left except the placing of the German church under independent national control. But the absence notwithstanding recent changes of any real national unity, and the characteristic collapse of Maximilian's zeal for church reform, wrecked all these aspirations and endeavors, and in the end, the emperor and the princes, although unrepresented at the Lateran Council, solemnly acknowledged it. The same feudal course was taken by Spain and by England. 
while the Lateran Council was still in progress, and just after the War of the Holy League had driven the French from Italy, Julius II died and was succeeded by Leo X, March 1513. The drastic measures taken by the new pope at the beginning of his reign prepared a virtually complete victory for the papal policy. The chief of the reforming cardinals submitted. Francis I, though in the flush of victory, accepted a concordat, 1515, as a compromise of the French national demands, and the Lateran Council before its close, December 1516, confirmed the bull Unam Sanctam, which declared it necessary to salvation for every human being to be subject to the authority of the Pope. The question of reformation, on the other hand, though by no means ignored, was not materially advanced by this merely Italian assembly. The papal abuses proper were virtually passed by, and when before separating the council sanctioned the levy of contributions for a crusade, both the Spanish clergy and the estates of the empire suspected a Florentine trick. The Fifth Lateran Council had made it clear that all hope of a reformation of the church from within must be abandoned. Except where the practice of the papal policy was restricted by concordance, princes, prelates, and peoples suffered in common from the impositions of Rome, and no class of society could be blind to the results of the progressive decay of both efficiency and morality among the clergy. More especially was this degeneracy to be deplored in the case of the monastic orders, so many of which had been established with the avowed purpose of reanimating and reinvigorating popular religion. Princes and prelates were, in addition, as jealous as they had always been of papal claims which impaired their own sovereign or episcopal authority. Surrounded by a new splendor, since the subjection of the new world to its supremacy, the papacy had at home outwitted its adversaries and could afford to contemn its censors. What remedy remained? To this question, two different answers were proposed by two great men. But by preferring Luther's, the opponents of the papal system of church government made the answer of Erasmus impossible. Accordingly, the experiment was left untried whether Western Christendom might be educated into seeking and securing for itself a purer church with a more reasonable presentment of religion. The actual mode was soon burst by the fiery metal impulsively poured into it. Rome spoke in the matter of the Lutheran heresy, June 1520, at the very time when in his fulminant address to the Christian nobles of Germany, Luther was detailing his own ideas of indispensable church reform, ideas far more moderate than the language in which they were clothed. Eleven months later, he was, with the help of a discreditable maneuver, formally placed under the ban of the empire. But the edict was far from generally executed in the empire, and a prospect still existed of closing the breach made by Luther's well-timed boldness when the pontificate of Leo X suddenly came to an end, December 1521. The elevation to the papal chair of Adrian VI, the emperor's late tutor and actual regent in Spain, may have been primarily due to the fact that he was an absentee from the conclave where all the cardinals present 
desired their own election. But of course he was a peculiarly safe choice in the eyes of the imperial party and of its accepted nominee, Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, when the election of the latter proved impossible, while as a distinguished scholastic theologian he seemed worthier of trust than perhaps a prominent reformer or two among the candidates. In his antecedents there was nothing to alarm conservative instincts. When an academical celebrity at Louvain, though all but an ascetic in habits of life and most open-handed in his charities, he had been a very notable pluralist. The doctrine of papal infallibility, which his learned pen had in those days taken upon itself to confute, was one which the Church had still left undefined. As regent in Spain, while his resignation on his appointment to the See of Tortosa of some of his other preferments might seem the act of a purist, he had shown great activity in the office of Inquisitor-General, which he retained until within a few days of his death. On the announcement of his election to the papacy, Adrian submitted to this crowning manifestation of the divine will with a solemn sense of the dignity of the office to which he was called, and in which it seemed impossible for him to look upon himself as the creature of the emperor. The circumstances of his election were at the time, as afterwards, much misrepresented, but how could he have failed from the first to appreciate its significance and to recall the times when another Charles had, under the papacy of another Adrian, fought the battles of the Holy See against its foes? Nor, when the general character of the ecclesiastical policy of Charles V is considered together with the nature of his personal relations to Adrian VI, can it be denied that the union of these two potentates seemed to offer a unique chance of a Catholic counter-reformation, that is, a regeneration of the Church combined with the extirpation of heresy. End of section 1